ESG has traditionally, and climate often is still talked about as a risk and as a challenge, which it is. But there's another component to it, which is the opportunity that Lisa also just mentioned, right? And how companies can actually leverage that to access capital, to differentiate themselves in the talent market and attract talent that cares about sustainability more broadly, or even differentiate themselves from a product perspective. Hello and welcome to the INSEAD Emerging Markets Podcast, where we interview business leaders and emerging market experts on business innovations, market opportunities, and macro level trends in emerging and frontier market countries. Join us for the next hour to dive deep into the world of emerging markets as we speak with top performers who are successfully investing, working, and living in these markets themselves. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Inside Emerging Market Podcast. I am Vincent Tordeau and I will be your host today. Today, we will discuss sustainable business opportunities in Southeast Asia. And to discuss this topic, I'm pleased to welcome Lisa Genashi and Mark Schmidt. Lisa is a Managing Director of Sustainable Finance with ADM Capital, where she leads the firm's ESG committee and sits on the Investment Advisory Committee. Mark is a Managing Director and Partner at BCG and is the Southeast Asia Lead for Social Impact, Environment and Climate. Lisa, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. In business, sustainability refers to doing business without negatively impacting the environment, community or society as a whole. Sustainability in business generally addresses two main categories. The effect business as on, as on the environment, the effect business as on society. The goal of a sustainable business strategy is to make a positive impact on at least one of those areas. Building sustainable business is particularly critical in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is one of the world's most vulnerable regions to climate change. The region has about 700 million people, and an economy topping $3 trillion. It also covers a wide range of economic and human development. Unless climate change is checked, the Asian Development Bank estimates the region's economy could shrink by 11% by the end of the century due to the toll on agriculture, fisheries, and tourism. And so to start our conversation, I would like to ask Mark and Lisa to share their thoughts on sustainable business opportunities in Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so I think if we look at... I think Southeast Asia, I would say it's a microcosm as often so much talked about because of the diversity of the different countries that we have in Southeast Asia in terms of economic development, you know, political systems, but also fabric of the economies within each of the countries. Right? And, and so if we look at just take a climate perspective, as you kind of alluded to earlier, and maybe take GHG emissions as one way of characterizing different economies. What we see is obviously energy generation accounts for a large portion of those, often through coal-fired power, but that's often a sort of a more state-controlled sector. So, it's, you know, if you think about businesses, it's probably more instructive to look sort of one level down and to the second, third, and fourth contributors, right? And, and there, we quickly get to actually agriculture and Southeast Asia producing a lot of crops that are, you know, both used within Southeast Asia, but also globally. And as an economic uh, factor, we get to transport, logistics, we get to all of the you know, more heavy emitting industries around building materials, cement, uh, mining, metals, and so forth, that are actually obviously also fueling, obviously, the infrastructure sector, as well as the private sector that are 
responsible and ultimately accountable and take uh, you know uh, take action in this space. Thank you, um, Lisa. Your your perspective. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, Vincent. Well, Mark has obviously provided a very good sort of broad sweep across sustainability in Southeast Asia. But I would just add to this that sustainability really isn't an option, doesn't really matter from sustainability is just a factor that needs to be built into every business opportunity. Just pause for a second and and refer to the criticisms of ESG and sustainability that we've seen most recently in the press. I would say that still building risk assessments, shifting business strategies, regardless of the sector to mitigate or adapt to climate is just not an option. So most businesses understand this. Um, it's just it's it's not it's not an option. Any business that's not seeing the sort of wholesale transformation of every industry and economy that we're facing is simply not managing risk adequately or looking at the opportunities that we face, because obviously with transformation also comes opportunity. In terms of agriculture and land use sectors, which is where at ADM we're looking very closely to help stimulate new business models that incorporate sustainability, we're seeing lots of opportunities. And businesses again that aren't seeing this are not uh, are missing out. Um, not to mention that they're they're not managing risk adequately. About forty percent of land globally is used to produce food. Southeast Asia is no exception. Um, and I think about the same percentage of population is engaged in agriculture. So you can see the crossovers between both the sort of the climate risk and the the sort of the people aspect of of uh, agriculture. About thirty percent of our greenhouse gas emissions are from agriculture um, when land use is taken into account. In 24 countries, I think uh, agriculture is the primary source of emissions. And in Indonesia, that number is 60%. So 60% of Indonesia's greenhouse gas emissions come from land use change from um, forest to agriculture, the burning. So also in Indonesia, um, important to remember that 13% of GDP is agriculture. So a country like Indonesia that relies on agricultural commodities in particular a country of 17,000 islands that is vulnerable to climate change, to extreme weather, heat, sea level rise, drought, recognises acutely the importance of, um, of building sustainability into business models, considering energy sources, phasing out coal, producing more food with less, conserving water, reducing agriculture inputs, for example, and then also considering how people receive capital, how how rural sector can feed itself can accommodate, uh, can adapt to climate at the same time. So most industries will be affected and need to... And, and governance. Thank you. And to follow up on your initial comments, how can the different dimensions of sustainability... The companies run, management practices, the board level structure, how the board interacts with the company, for example... Social aspects consider how the company treats its workers, if it's inclusive or not in terms of diversity, but also how it engages with those involved in the business, with communities where they do business. Uh, and of course, the environmental um, considers the environmental context, environmental context, which would vary by sector and the agriculture sector. Deforest, is there deforestation, supply chain, how peatlands treated and protected? Are there protected areas to manage as part of a, a business proposition? Is there pollution from production, water, air, soil? What are the energy sources? What are the inputs used? So they are all interrelated and equally important. You can't think about, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, the sort of the land use sector be able to plant. So are they integrated with the banking system? Do they have access to lending? So it's um, must must treat all equally. Thank you, Mark. Your perspective on 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 the different dimension of sustainability in uh, specifically in Southeast Asia. 
Yeah, no, I I, I agree uh, with Lisa, and, and probably you know they they're generally quite interrelated, but much more so I think in this context that we operate here. And actually, my experience, <coughs> you know, talking to corporates, is they very much recognize their responsibility across each of these dimensions. You know, and and climate just added another component to it, but you know, it's not uh, they don't see that as separate, basically, to the broader sort of ESG. Agenda uh, that they are that they're running. Um, the other thing I just wanted to add, you know, picking up on something that Lisa was saying just now is, um, you know, ESG has traditionally and climate, uh, you know, often is still talked about, you know, as as a risk uh, and as a challenge, which it is, uh, you know. But there's another component to it, which is uh, the opportunity. Uh, that Lisa also just mentioned, right? And how companies can actually leverage that to access capital, uh, to differentiate themselves in the talent market, uh, you know, and, and, and attract talent that is, you know, that cares about sustainability more broadly, or even, you know, differentiate themselves uh, from a product perspective, depending on, you know, obviously what industry we're talking. Thank you. What are some of the challenges sustainable businesses will face in a post-pandemic world? The specific uh, challenges facing uh, those initiatives in in Southeast Asia that you're seeing, Mark? Yeah, I, I think in general, obviously, um, this is a space, I would say, where there's a lot of uncertainty because it's not necessarily clear you know, where will the opportunities rise? You know, how will consumers, for example, um, you know, how much will their value products? Um, and so what does that mean, you know, from a positioning perspective? Uh, you know, how will, so what are um, companies that will finance uh, some of these sustainability initiatives? Um, you know, how, how will they look at these companies, right? Because some of them obviously come with a, I guess a legacy, if I can call it that way, of being maybe in high emitting industry, but want to change, right? So they are also trying to understand, you know, access and, and how this will evolve. And, you know, if I just look at uh, sort of green financing frameworks, I've, you know, there's, there's a lot of evolution, I, I guess, over the last, um, you know, uh, years and months uh, on, on this as well. So, so there's a bit of ambiguity, I guess, uh, uh, and uncertainty in this. But at the same time, I guess, if you really think through those scenarios, uh, and I think the way corporates need to think about it, um, they can put initiatives in place that will help them sort of thrive um, in, in, in different environments. Between, um, you know, I think there is a kind of a very specific uh, political And as a, a quick follow-up on the headwind sustainable businesses could be facing in the region, what are your views on the political risk? Mark, um, I mean, I, I guess it, it probably adds more broadly uh, to some of these uncertainties. Uh, so both, I think, the broad, broader geopolitical, regional geopolitical developments, Southeast Asia, China, US, as well as sort of the domestic, I guess, political developments with, you know, quite a few elections sort of coming up over the next uh, one or two years as well. So, so you know, that probably gives uncertainty to the regulatory environment or to the political dimension. 
But that that said, I think most companies are coming to around to that we can't wait and see what happens, but basically need to start to position ourselves and take action, right? And but maybe take some flexibility, you know, as, as moving forward. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Mark. I think the the path is broadly charted. Um, it's um, it's it, the inevitability is there. It's just how do we get there? Um, from my perspective, the main challenges I see it are one of the main. There are multiple challenges. It's going to be an extremely complex transition. But one of them is, and a fundamental one that we've bumped up against is the, is the additional cost of sustainable production. Uh, something that Mark alluded to. So who's going to pay for that? Is it going to be the consumer, for example? Um, is it going to be the MNC uh, accepting that you know, profits are, are reduced? It's not actually additional cost in the end. It's the real cost of production, right? We're used to yes. cheap clothes, cheap clothes that don't integrate externalities, water pollution, soil pollution, air pollution, haze from burning and other pollution. All of those are externalities that have not been included in the cost of production and all have public health consequences, all deplete our resources, uh, and all are untenable looking forward. So, but that transition to integrating those costs um, into production is going to be a tough one. But I do see that the dramatic two years of COVID lockdown where we've completely changed our lives and we've seen that we can uh, just alter how we live um, has also changed people's perception of what can be done in a positive way. Um, so there's more attention being paid perhaps to appreciating nature, for example, and um, that has positive consequences perhaps for how we produce our goods, just the appreciation of, of what, what is around us and our environment broadly. Um, so, I, I mean, I and, and that we can transition. So I, I do hope that that uh, leads into a, a greater understanding of the complexities in a place like Southeast Asia, which is producing the world's commodities um, and a lot of it's and is manufacturing some of its goods too. Uh, of course, governments need to pay more attention um, than they are at the moment to regulation, build a significant carbon tax to really stimulate that change. Um, but, you know, businesses are largely paying attention and finance certainly is um, to sustainability and considering the regulatory, legal, reputational risk of not doing so. I mean, there's both the sort of the opportunity that we've outlined and also the the um the stick of the sort of impending regulatory legal um and reputational risk if if they don't uh, transition or pay attention to sustainability um so the risk is really about again the transition which is i mean how do we lead that transition in industries some industries will be completely eliminated um because they just can't make that transition and they're going to be consequences for people so it, and again, referring back to the agricultural commodities, I mean, one that has been heavily hit by sort of reputational issues is, of course, the palm oil sector. But that is complex. It's a significant portion of um, GDP in a place like Indonesia. And it is uh, an employer of people of you know, four million smallholders produce palm oil in Indonesia. It's 40 percent of all palm oil production is produced by smallholders. So we need to not eliminate palm oil, as I think a lot would, a lot of people would have it, but we need to just transition how it's produced and make sure that it's not produced associated with deforestation. So those challenges just need to be confronted and dealt with and transitioned rather than, you know, there be sort of a, I, I guess, a, a full stop to. I think, you know, if we look across the region, you know, and compare it maybe to other regions uh, and on pricing those externalities, I think, you know, we, they're still not 
priced in at the moment, uh, you know, in, in most um, in, in most markets here. Um, now, <clears throat> obviously, the you know the regulator can play a role uh, in doing so, and you know there's been uh, you know announcements around that. For example, in Indonesia, with uh, you know uh, the carbon tax uh, being announced and, and, and launched. Uh, the question is obviously what's the real price of these externalities and how do we actually get to the right price signals right so and i think there's um where we're seeing some you know positive developments around you know for example establishing of you know carbon trading market platforms that are you know ultimately building the infrastructure uh for us to do that uh going forward i think the question is i guess how can both i think the the regulator, the government, but also, you know, the corporates um, through their actions and their initiative accelerate, you know, the the pricing of these externalities. Right? Um, and in some ways, for me, it's also about, um, you know, who's willing to lead uh, here. Um, often um, individual companies, you know, may find it difficult to necessarily stick their head out uh but it's it's then a question around i think building sort of coalitions you know across private sector companies maybe some state-owned sector companies as well as with you know parts of the regulator to actually drive that forward so that that's sort of how i would describe uh you know probably a model uh that that could help you know, accelerate from where we are today uh, to somewhere where we need to be quite quickly with, you know, with the next, you know, five, 10 years, uh, the latest. Yeah, those coalitions are often very scary for businesses, but um, it's absolutely, you're 100% right. That's the way forward. I mean, we need to think differently about how, you know, how partnerships are formed in order to be able to, you know, create these new business models because they are going to be public and private and communities and conservation. I mean, that all of that needs to be somehow integrated into, into the business models that we look forward, uh, that, that we look forward to sort of, we look to see in the future. Um, and I think, yeah, and governments need to understand that also and be comfortable associating with the private sector and, and, and providing the incentives that are going to be necessary um, in order to stimulate that change. They need to cut through the political challenges, I would say, and the local interests and focus on that transition with things like, you know, a better price for renewables, um, stop subsidizing petroleum except for those who need it, uh, substantial tax on carbon. I mean, the $2 uh, on carbon, tax on carbon in Indonesia is just not sufficient. We need a much higher tax on carbon. I think an article in Nature last week said that real, the real cost of carbon should be $185. Um, you know, regulate coal, make sure the EV transition includes a complete supply chain uh, reframe. So from the nickel production to the smelting to the battery production and recycling. Again, it's like, you know, we have to think about the whole supply chain. It's not just, you know, just one small business opportunity anymore. And that will involve, again, those coalitions and those partnerships if we're, if we're going to transition supply chains. Uh, I mean, broadly, we need to do a better job with waste. I mean, that's Often the purview of government recycling needs to be encouraged. Environmental regulation needs to be tightened and enforced. I mean, China has obviously managed better in terms of enforcement in recent years just because they had to. They recognized that there was going to be mass social uprising if they didn't clean up the air and the water and the soil. Um, so those regulations that have been on the books for years were enforced or are starting to be uh, over the last years have, have been enforced and fines have been issued for violations. That's, that's what needs to happen across Southeast Asia also. Um, 
it's just a matter of time. One tool public, public authorities have to drive this change is through the funding route. Given the tightening financial conditions in the region, how do you expect this to affect funding availability? Yeah, there's a there's a, a lot of uh, I guess there's a misperception of risk is what I would say um, still in the sector. There's a sense that uh, this, finance hasn't necessarily transitioned to that new view of partnerships that we've mentioned is going to be so important. Um, and the sense of uh, integrating many players into a transaction, which is just going to have to be part of any sort of investment story. Um, and then there's concern about, you know, what does it mean to have communities as part of a transaction or conservation? Who's going to manage that? Um, and what is the reputational risk? So there's still a real reluctance to step into um, difficult sectors with finance in new ways. But of course, that doesn't hold true for renewables. There just hasn't been the government incentive um, to provide the, uh, the, you know, the right pricing around renewables to incentivize the private sector to step in uh, or investors to step in and, 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 and finance in that sector. So, I mean, I think, again, it sort of varies depending on the sector, what the challenges are, but there is this misperception of risk um, and people still are reluctant to invest differently. They're still thinking about how they invested in the past. But from my perspective, that is the reputational risk is investing in a company in palm oil production in the way that it had been you know, invested, the way invested had sort of approached palm oil. You know, in, in the previous years, that's just not that's not the right approach. Looking forward, um, so we we need to change that. But again, it's it's yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I just want to maybe pick up on one point around uh, Lisa. You said like it takes time. So I think all of these are transitional discussions, right? So how do we transition, right? One of the I guess key words over the last sort of year or two has been this question of just transition, right? Because uh, and and that's where government, in particularly you know, needs to needs to play a role because, you know, as we said, all of these sectors that we just talked about, you know, in agriculture more broadly, but palm or pulp and paper or in mining, you know, obviously there's a coal mining com component, but there's also other metals. All of this, um, or cement, for example, you know, as a high high emitting industry, um, you know, there's typically, the, as you said, there's a reputational risk in sort of engaging with these sectors, but we cannot actually do the transition if we don't engage with these sectors. And so, so I think there's institutions, you know, uh, governmental or not, that can play a role at helping ensure that, you know, the transition is just and actually and true and sustainable, ultimately, right? Um, and that's Corporates are also held to account, uh, you know, to improving across all of these ESG dimensions as as um, as they go through the transition. So I think that's that's I think one role, and you know, I think the other one is obviously there's probably some some more systemic risks involved in funding, where I think government institutions and or you know, uh, sovereign wealth funds or, or or sort of other sort of indirect. Um, public um, institutions can also take a role and, and play a facilitating role as well by, for example, co-investing uh, or, or the like, right? So I think for me, you know, that that's where I see sort of the role, but it's it's really important that we don't shy away of tackling these uh, sometimes, um, you know, shunned industries, uh, because if we don't address them, we're actually not addressing the problem 
and we're just um, pushing it out, right? Which ultimately I think will not just make it more difficult for the planet, <laughs> but more difficult for the economies, uh, these these companies, and with that, I think for the people uh, that are associated with them for employment, and 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 then we'll have you know a totally different uh, set of problems uh, to deal with at that point in time. Thank you. So far, we have been discussing the role of public authorities as well as companies. I would be interested to hear your view on the roles individuals as consumers, workers, or entrepreneurs can play in driving this change. Mark, if, if you would like to, yep. uh, to lead. Yeah. I Look, I mean, I think so the consumer, obviously, and I think the general, you know, the voter and the individual as such, you know, in a in a more broader sense, obviously plays a, a vital role. I think in in the in the transition, I was part of a actually just pre-COVID part of a sort of discussion panel, and you know there was a question to the audience around you know who do they believe will be able to lead into the climate um, action, right? And of the the three potential components of it, which was individual, corporates, and, and governments. You know, the individuals and the corporates were the ones that people would most bet on actually driving, you know, action going forward. Now, to your point, you know, are they actually in a position, I think, across Southeast Asia to do so? I think there's two components to me uh, of that. One is sort of the, I guess, awareness side. So are, are they aware or around the challenge, the climate challenges more broadly, or environmental challenges more broadly, uh, but also, you know, are they then aware how that trickles down into, you know, their their, you know, their, their purchasing decisions that they make every day uh, when they go into the supermarket or or, or, the, or the like. And actually, so we did a study recently um, in Indonesia, and um, and it was so geared towards the 18 to 30 year olds. Um, and we actually found that, uh, you know, over 30% were willing to pay a premium, you know, a small premium, maybe 10%, but generally willing to pay a premium for more sustainable uh, products. So so there was awareness, there was a general willingness there, right? And this is not just uh, like an affluent uh, part um, of the population, but um, you know, across the board. But that said, you know, also uh, when you ask people to then rank, you know, how important is this? Um, and this actually coincides with some of the UNDP studies I've seen. You know, then it comes out at like number four, number five, because employment, uh, food, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, still dominates sort of like the the priorities ultimately. Right? So, so I think, so I'm, I'm I guess cautiously optimistic in that sense because as you see the awareness you see the willingness but obviously we actually need to fix and help economic development more broadly that this then also translates or is able to translate into action and to people actually paying more of a premium uh, now if they have the choice between the same product one more sustainable and the other and they come at the same price then actually they will choose a sustainable product right so so that that's already obviously a good thing uh, to to start off with. Yeah, I mean, just to um, follow up um, Mark's perspective, which I think is is quite an interesting one. Um, I mean, obviously, when we're talking about consumers, are like consumers being ready, and uh, we're talking about leading the transition, it's a lot of 
in large part, it's the global consumers that are going to help lead this transition, right? Because they are buying products that are produced in Indonesia. They're buying the agricultural commodities. They're buying manufactured products. They're buying commodities that are produced in a place like India, all over Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia. And they have to understand, you know, sustainability and what it means to pay that really low price for a product that's produced without factoring externalities. But then sort of switching into the Southeast Asia consumer, I think perhaps because the Southeast Asia consumer does live with typhoons, extreme weather events, extreme heat, um, they're, you know, they're, they're connected to the sort of the, the, the blunt end of the stick from climate. They're already seeing it. They're seeing that transformation. Um, so I think that they are more switched on to what that means, sustainability, what that means. And I, I agree with Mark. I think that that is a, is a factor in their decision making and then you have I mean of course that's more the urban population the rural population doesn't have the ability as often to make the sort of decisions about you know higher price or not because they're still trying to feed their family so the financial inclusion is so important um, and lack of financial inclusion of the rural sector is such a big issue and certainly one that we've we've been looking at um, so bringing rural farmers into the banking system digitizing them so bringing also all of the sort of digitization and the the sort of the techno savvy that you have from the urban uh, populations in Southeast Asia into the rural sectors, I think is also really important in terms of building in the understanding of climate, what's happening, uh, what's happening in the in the sort of rural economies. Uh, that's a critical piece of the puzzle and key to stemming deforestation and, and you know, dealing with uh, the climate issues that we face globally. So, again, you know, it's sort of all interrelated, but I think certainly the urban um, Southeast Asian consumers uh, is very aware and understanding and the rural communities feel it, feel the transition that they're, you know, in their weather, they're farmers, um, but don't necessarily have the ability to make those sorts of decisions. And just to, to follow up, to what extent is it becoming critical for businesses in the region to showcase their sustainability credentials to attract talent? Well, I just think it does. I think the, the younger population really understands um, these challenges and wants to see that their companies are integrative, that their companies are focused on diversity, their companies are responding as they should to the challenges at hand. Um, I think it, it doesn't feel good to work to be part of sort of the old economy. I mean, everyone wants to be part of something that's new and modern. And I do think that um, building sustainability into your business model is new and modern. And uh, that's certainly where youth want to be. But Mark probably has a broader perspective than I do. No, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I, and I guess uh, I, I would like to pick up the differentiation that you put in, Lisa, earlier between the urban and maybe the rural side of, of the talent market. Um, you know, in the in the urban space, maybe sometimes it's a little bit more of an abstract conversation. You know, it's more, you know, the conversation around climate impacts going forward. And, you know, maybe, yes, sometimes, you know, some populations obviously see it uh, sort of coming through when, you know, they're affected by major weather disasters. Um, but in, in general, it's maybe a one more removed conversation. Uh, but if you think about sort of the workers that we talked about, the smallholder farmers, the the workers in the that are working on the mines, you know, that are working in the factories. Um, you know, if, if a company takes a holistic ESG um, approach, you know, a lot of the also the S part as well as the E part actually improves their livelihoods, right? Because it improves the 
way they live in the community, it improves maybe access to healthcare, you know, improves uh, safety on the job, you know, so the, so all of these things like directly translate into a better, you know, outcome in terms of livelihoods. So for people, so I do think you know if if companies perform highly on on ESG, both for the I guess I would call the more urban part of the population as well as rural, it is a differentiating factor and and I think can attract uh, people because it's essential. It's not a nice to have necessarily. Right? Thank you. The economies of Southeast Asia are dominated by large conglomerates and state-owned enterprises. And so I would be interested to hear your views on how those type of businesses approach sustainability. Uh, happy to start off. I mean, I think in general, um, you know, all companies have a role to play here, right? So everybody is uh, uh, addressed by the call for action. Um, I, I think if I look at the fabric of, you know, again, you know, as we said earlier, across Southeast Asia, you know, uh, actually it looks quite different, you know, different Type companies sort of dominate uh, also by sector, uh, but I, what I think is for me encouraging here is you know the two I guess sort of parts of the economy that you just mentioned, which is the more family-owned conglomerates uh, and also the state-owned sector, which have a large portion of the economy. Often, uh, one of the two things I would observe across both of these is they can take and they take typically a more longer term perspective on business development on development of their business right because either that's obviously you know given sort of from from a government perspective or you know in the family conglomerates it's more like a multi-generational viewpoint uh, of, of building a business um so and, and that, i think that's encouraging here because people can take a longer term perspective uh, on what it takes uh, rather than a sort of shorter term year by year sort of driven financial results perspective, right? So if I would just contrast them maybe to the extreme. And then the, the other one is obviously, I think both uh, of these sectors have a sort of a, um, uh, not just a long-term perspective, but have an ability to kind of pull through and be more directive in terms of driving the business. And so, so if those long-term objectives are aligned with sustainability goals and climate action, you know, then you also see things happening more quickly uh, because of that ability to kind of drive through change uh, more effectively. So, but it obviously takes both of those uh, dimensions to be sort of in tandem, I guess, uh, to to actually drive to the outcomes that we were talking about throughout the, the last half hour. Yeah, I mean, um, I agree. Um, family conglomerates, I think, understand that this is the future. They're always looking for, as Mark says, that sort of long-term opportunity. And if they see a country headed in this direction, they're feeling um, in their sort of supply chains the the push for transition. I do think that that's the, the sort of the direction that they will head. Um, this is increasingly evident, I think, in Indonesia. I spoke at Kadin, which is the Chamber of Commerce, last week, and I was really surprised to hear all of the very detailed conversation around sustainability in their own businesses. So these were families talking about sustainability in their businesses. And I was great to hear. 
Um, MNCs, of course, um, have traditionally been the sort of the buyers of all the commodities in Southeast Asia, um, and they need to step up to encourage that transition by providing long-term offtake agreements for sustainable product and paying a higher price for for that sustainable product. And that isn't happening now. They're still squeezing um, the producers um, in terms of price, and that is a challenge in terms of making you know helping incentivize the transition. Um, there's still resistance to jumping into support. There are a lot of pilots, a lot of pilot projects out there with communities, but um, um, and a lot of weeding out of perceived bad actors. But as Mark has said so rightly, we can't just weed out bad actors. We need to actually help lead this transition. So you can't eliminate a whole sector or or a series of mills because they're not producing the right way. We need to help them transition because there are, you know, thousands of jobs behind each one of these uh, one each one of these smaller Indonesian companies. Um, you know, part of that is, again, you, we, we've spoken about the government, the role the government can play um, alongside the MNCs and the conglomerates, the need for agriculture extension services, again, maybe promoted by government um, nurseries for planting materials, technology. Urban development is continuing apace. So what's happening in the sort of rural economies? Um um, and then again, you know, the other piece of the question is like, what is the role of DFIs, the development finance institutions, um, which really should be taking the risk in this context and helping to lead this transition? Um, and I think that they're also somewhat risk adverse. Um, they are hammered by, you know, entities or media outlets that that monitor every project that they get invested in. So, of course, they're reluctant to step in and invest in difficult areas. Um, uh, they need to have local officers to understand that risk and to understand that, you know, real risk, I guess, that, again, go back to that sort of misperception of risk um, and then not compete with the private sector for those easy projects because there's money for those easy projects. It's, you know, where is the where is the difficulty? That's where sort of DFIs need to be playing a role with guarantees or first losses or uh, FX facilities. Um, I think that's all absolutely they can play a, a really important role. But again, their balance sheet is quite small. <clears throat> so it comes back to <clears throat> comes back to the private sector really leading leading this. But um certainly there is a role for uh, DFIs to play in incentivizing this transition. Thank you. And to conclude our exchange, do you expect sustainability considerations to take a back seat in the face of the economic challenges gathering around the region? Let me uh, take a stab at that one. So I've actually been asked this before, um, uh, and particularly by also by corporates uh, who are trying to understand how that whole landscape will move going forward. Um, my personal take across the board on this is, you know, talking to many uh, clients as well is, of course, they will potentially look at certain investments and when to take those investments because. Of you need to obviously have a financial viable business. Um, but I think the direction is clear. Uh, the, the speed uh, will probably continue at this uh, speed. And I think we will see an acceleration again. Uh, but maybe, you know, if you compare two years ago to one year ago to now, we, we see we've seen a considerable acceleration. So Question is, will we accelerate at the same speed or maybe go a little bit slower and then accelerate again? Right. So, but I think it's more sort of this the pace, the, finding the right pace. But I don't think it's a 
any stop or any change in direction. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I feel a lot of optimism actually in Southeast Asia about the future. A lot of uh, obviously a large sort of youthful population, which has seen great transition already in their lifetime uh, in the in the urban sector. Anyways, that just hasn't reached the sort of the rural parts of, of Indonesia. And I think that there's a, a sense of the need to transition um, to modernize the the rural economies at the same pace and the sense of possibility and hope um, and sustainability as a part of all of that um, they again I think the Southeast Asian economies are very connected to <laughs> climate I mean they are <clears throat> subject to typhoons and weather and and um, droughts and floods and more than perhaps others so there is an urgency. There is an urgency which is felt by everybody. An urgency and at the same time this sort of sense of optimism in terms of the future, which is great, great to feel. Thank you so much. And this concludes our discussion today. Mark, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your views on sustainable businesses in Southeast Asia. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the NCAD Emerging Markets Podcast. To stay up to date on events we may be hosting, emerging market news, and to build your personal network, please feel free to join the NCAD Alumni Emerging Markets Interest Group on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the NCAD Emerging Markets Podcast. To stay up to date on events we may be hosting, emerging market news, and to build your personal network, please feel free to join the NCAD Alumni Emerging Markets Interest Group on LinkedIn.